Thank you for that introduction, Alex. And I am excited to be here today when I found out, I think in September, that I would be teaching in Leviticus. I was actually excited because, probably like many of you, it's not a book that I spend all that much time in. So I was excited to get the chance to kind of dig in and study an unfamiliar passage. And then I actually started reading um, Leviticus, and I remembered why I don't spend that much time there. It's gory, there's blood everywhere, and it's confusing to most of us. It talks about things that we're, we're not sure what to do with. And then, quite frankly, it just mentions a lot of things that make me really uncomfortable. Um, but then I remind myself of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So I keep reciting that to myself as I continue to study. And then I was just incredibly instructed from this book. And it's my hope that in our time together in the next few minutes, that we're going to come away with a better appreciation for this book and the richness of the love of God that we see. But despite kind of shying away from Leviticus when I was younger, there's a few verses that I actually really love um, because it's helped me in a practical way. So when I was younger, a teenager, and actually still to this day, I have an aversion to um, fat, like on meat. Um, If you give me a steak or a piece of chicken or something, I will take a lot of time to cut away the fat and push it aside. It just really bothers me. I don't like the feel. I don't like the flavor. It's just gross. Um, My dad, however, thinks this is kind of an annoying habit. So when we go out to a restaurant or even if we're just at home, I can feel him watching me as I'm sitting there cutting my meat and turning it over and kind of poking it, um, all of that. And then I hear him sighing. And eventually, I think when he just can't stand it any longer, he'll say something like, Kelly, stop micromanaging your meat and just eat it. Um, So I I still don't eat it. Um, I love my dad and trust him on many things, but not this issue. Um, However... When I was in college, I found a verse, two verses, in Leviticus, of all places, that has, I think, won my argument, and you read them this week, uh, Leviticus 3, 16 and 17. They say, the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as food and offering by fire for a soothing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generation. In all your dwellings, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. So that's my verse. Um, And poor Lynn is like rolling her eyes at me because you know that I've done something really wrong with those verses, right? I've ripped them out of their context. You know, it's talking about a peace offering and I have no intention on killing a lamb. So to use those verses is really wrong of me in that context. But I actually think that this kind of illustrates our difficulty with a book like Leviticus, because we get to it, and we don't really know what we're supposed to do with some of those commands that are given, uh, because it's the Old Testament. And so today we're going to look at the sacrificial system, uh, and we're going to see that even though we aren't under the Old Covenant's requirements, it's still instructive for us because of what it teaches us about the Lord and his character. We're going to look at how the first 16 chapters of Leviticus inform our understanding about God and man and salvation. 
And we're going to see that under three divisions. First, that Leviticus displays the holiness and the love of God. And then we're going to look at how Leviticus evidences the sinfulness and the dependence of man. And then we're going to look at how it magnifies the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And just know as we walk through this, we're not going to cover all 16 chapters. So we're going to be jumping around quite a bit, uh, as well as in the New Testament. But my hope is that as we do this, we'll come away with a better understanding of God and the salvation that he provides in Christ, and that we'll be better worshipers through that. But before we get to those portions, I kind of want to step back and do a brief overview of where we've been in the Pentateuch. So we've studied Genesis and we've studied Exodus. We've seen God's creation of the world and then mankind's fall to sin and the corrupting Uh, consequences of that and the moral bankruptcy of mankind due to sin. But we've also seen the promises of God go forth and his purposes for a offspring of Eve who's going to uh, conquer Satan and all that he brings. And then in Exodus, uh, God makes himself known as a savior to his people as he rescues them uh, out of Egypt, and then he enters into a covenant with them in which they were to be blessed by keeping the law. One of the things that we looked at recently was the instruction given for the building of the tabernacle. And Moses is given that at Mount Sinai. And it says in Exodus 25, 8 through 9, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And that is really the driving ambition of the book of Leviticus. How can a holy God dwell amidst a sinful people? Now, while Genesis and Exodus moved that storyline along, mainly through narrative portions, we get to Leviticus and we encounter something quite different, a different genre. This is law. It's instruction for God's people. And besides two narrative portions in Leviticus 18 through 10 and then chapter 24, it stands kind of frozen at this point in time after the Exodus as a manual for God's people and especially for God's priests. Um, First, in how they approach God, and then second, how they live before him and walk before him as his people. Chapters 17 through 27 will give instructions about the way in which Israel was to live as God's people But our chapters today, 1 through 16, are going to look at that first part, how God's people even approach a holy God. How can sinful man come to a holy God? And in these first 16 chapters, we're going to see how God provides the means by which his people may approach him in worship. And this takes us now to our first point, and that's that Leviticus displays the holiness and the love of God. So when Adam and Eve sinned back in Genesis 3, the relationship between God and man was altered. Before sinning, they enjoyed this blissful communion with God in the garden, yet after they sin, their reaction is to hide from God because of shame and guilt and fear. God casts them out of Eden, and then from that point, the experience of walking with God looks very different. There's a distance, there's a barrier to fellowship between God and man because of sin. So why is sin a barrier to our relationship with God? Well, it's because God is holy. 
The holiness of God is considered to be the main theme of the book of Leviticus. I think all of you know that by now. Uh, And that truth that God is holy directs the actions of his people. What does it mean that God is holy? I like what our pastor, Pastor John, wrote about this. He said, God's holiness is his inherent and absolute greatness in which he is perfectly distinct above everything outside himself and is absolutely morally separate from sin. So in this definition, you see two parts of how we understand God's holiness. It's his uniqueness and his transcendence and distinctness from everything else, and then it's also his moral perfection and his separation from sin. In Exodus 15, 11, after God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses emphasizes this distinctness of God when he says, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And then when we get to Habakkuk in the prophets, he knew of the holy God and God's moral perfection, so much so that he even questioned God's delay in punishing the wicked. He says in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Let's look at how Leviticus emphasizes the holiness of God. I think we see that first in the ministry of the tabernacle. We're not going to talk too much about the construction of the tabernacle because we saw that back in Exodus. Uh, But let's just note for a moment that by its design, the tabernacle was to show that God is holy and he is not to be approached carelessly. Israelites who were clean could come to the court of the tabernacle, the outside section, and they could present their offerings to the priests before the bronze altar that you see. But common, clean Israelites could not enter the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, because that was reserved for the priests. And why is that? Well, we read back in Exodus 39 and 40 that the priests were set apart by God specifically to minister to him in the tabernacle. But not even the priests could enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That was reserved for the high priest, and only he could enter uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement. We see this in Leviticus 16, 2 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bowl for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. It was a fearful thing to minister in the tabernacle, and especially for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies, because that was the nearest that you could come to the presence of God. The incident of Nadab and Abihu drives home this point of God's holiness being depicted in the tabernacle ministry. So if you could turn to Leviticus 10, and I will read the first three verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, 
It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. It's sobering to read these verses, and I think you can sense the seriousness of the ministry in the tabernacle that the priests had been entrusted with. Nadab and Abihu's failure to acknowledge and to respond rightly to the holiness of God was an absolutely just reason for him to kill them on the spot. And as we read that and we think about the holiness of God, I think it would be helpful also to think about the fact that God doesn't change. We know that from Malachi 3.6. So since God doesn't change, we know that he is still the same holy God that we encounter here in Leviticus. And as we grasp the holiness of God as it's depicted in the arrangement of the tabernacle and just the, the fearful thing it is to come close to God because of his absolute perfection and his moral purity and separation from sin, we should also be motivated in how we approach God and how we worship him uh, because he deserves nothing less. Besides this, uh, how the tabernacle depicts the holiness of God, there's another way that chapters 1 through 16 show us that, and that's in the distinctions we read of the holy, the common, the clean, and the unclean. Flip over to Exodus 11. I'm going to read 44 through 47. It reads, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. God is holy and his innate holiness provides the basis for Israel's declared and their displayed holiness. And here, in these verses, we see holiness in terms of separation and purity. The people of Israel were to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart from all the surrounding nations, even in their diet, because God himself is set apart from any and all defilement of sin. Except, unlike Israel, God is inherently holy. But I think it would be helpful to talk about these distinctions of holy, common, also called profane, and clean and unclean. In Leviticus 10.10, we read, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And these can be understood as a scale. On the far side, you have the holy. God alone is inherently holy, and all holiness emanates from him. And again, holiness means perfection. To be holy is to be unblemished, and that's why we read later that priests with deformities couldn't serve in the tabernacle, and also blemished animals couldn't be offered as sacrifices. Uh, On another level, though, like we've said, holiness is associated with moral perfection, which is why atonement must be made. Anything that's not holy is common, and common can be subdivided into the clean and the unclean. All right, so the default position for the people of Israel is that they're clean. However, we read in chapters 11 through 15 
that there's a lot of things that can defile a clean Israelite and make them unclean. And some of those defiling events aren't even sin. Um, It's just a departure from the fullness of life as God had created it in Eden. One of the purposes of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system was to bring cleansing or purification to the one who had faith in God so that they were enabled to have the best possible experience of fellowship with him in the community of God's people. And we're going to talk more about the sacrifices in a moment, but let's just let that truth sink in, that God had such great love for his people that he provided a way for their sins to be covered and for them to offer pleasing worship to him. And that's why we say that Leviticus shows us the holiness and the love of God. God always has desired a relationship with his children. And I think we often think of the sacrificial system as onerous, and it's definitely burdensome and it's meant to be, but don't miss the blessing of what it provided and what it offered Israel for their ongoing communion with the Lord. And a question that I think we may ask and that I've already been asked is, what do we mean when we talk about the presence of God in the tabernacle and in the Holy of Holies? Isn't God omnipresent? And that's a fair question. God is omnipresent. And by that, we mean that as creator of all things, God is transcendent above space and time and matter. He's not limited in space, but rather is present with every point of space in his entire being. And it's hard for our minds to grasp this. So I think the best way is to look at a few scriptures that teach this. One of my favorites, Psalm 139, says in verses 7 through 10, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And then Solomon, who was actually going to build the house of the Lord, even he knew that God was not contained within it. In 2 Chronicles 2.6, he says, But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? So when we talk about the presence of God in the tabernacle, we're not saying that God is contained within the tabernacle and that he's absent from the rest of space. Rather, his divine presence within the tabernacle indicates his presence particular relational presence with his people in a special manifestation of his glory on the mercy seat. His presence being with his people and their ability to come to him and to offer, make offerings to him shows the relationship that they have with the Lord that they had entered into and that God was with them for their good. So we've seen that God is holy. He can't be approached by sinners unless they are cleansed. And in God's provision of that sacrificial system, we see the love of God to provide a means by which he could dwell amongst his people. And in our second point, we find the reason why he can't dwell with his people normally, and that's because we see the sinfulness and the dependence of man. So why did Israel need the sacrificial system? Well, God gives it as a means by which his people who had faith in him could have their sins covered 
so that they could live with him and experience all the blessings of being his people. And I think we need to make a really, really important clarification here. Do the sacrifices of Leviticus save anyone? No. No one is saved by the blood of animals. No one at any time has ever been saved by their works. Salvation has always been through faith. And Genesis 15, 6, this is a key verse, because it shows us that God counted Abraham as righteous when he believed God, apart from works. And so important that Paul, even um, in Romans 3 and 4, goes to great lengths in establishing the fact that the Old Testament saints were saved through faith and not their works. The Old Testament saints didn't have the name of Jesus because that hadn't been revealed yet, but they had faith in God and that he would save them from their sin and fulfill all of his promises, which were continuing to unfold in the law and the prophets. Therefore, these sacrifices we're going to look at, they're not salvific. Um, However, when they're offered by the one who has faith in God, they are effective to cover sin and to allow for continued communion with God. So, that being said, let's look at the first seven chapters of Leviticus and see these five types of sacrifices, what they represent, what they accomplish, and how they depict sinful man's dependence on God. So first we have the burnt offering. You read this in Leviticus 1. It's the most common of all the offerings, and I think we're best if we understand it as um, representing consecration and devotion on the part of the worshiper to God. You'll see it accompanying other sacrifices, as in the Day of Atonement, when first there's a sin offering and then there's the burnt offering, again, uh, showing that full devotion of the worshiper to their God. I think we're going to even see this, or we saw this back in Exodus 24, in response to the terms of the covenant between God and Israel, the people say in verse 3, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they're, they're affirming that um, devotion to the Lord, and then Moses offers a burnt offering and a peace offering. So again, bringing us back to that um, element of consecration and devotion by God's people. Second, we have the grain offering in Leviticus 2, and this is voluntary. And it's usually presented in conjunction with another sacrifice. The word itself usually carries the idea of tribute. So it's an expression of loyalty from the faithful worshiper to their God. And it expresses both thankfulness to God and the desire to obey him. Then we come to my favorite, Leviticus 3, the peace offering. And it's also referred to as the fellowship offering. It's another voluntary offering, and it's made in praise to the Lord. And then if we look at Leviticus 7, you see that the peace offering actually falls under three different types. There's the thanksgiving, the votive or the vow offering, and then the free will. So all of those are types of peace offerings. Unlike the other sacrifices, in this one, the worshiper was actually allowed to eat part of the animal. So the peace offering we see is this meal that they'll have eaten near the sanctuary. Next, we get to the sin offering. And this is in Leviticus 4, 1 through 5, 13. The sin or the purification offering is mandated for times when an Israelite would be defiled by unintentional sin that's committed against any of the law of God. Leviticus 5, 26 shows the purpose of this offering. Thus, the priest shall make atonement for him 
in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. And by unintentional, or in some translations, inadvertent sins, I don't think scripture is saying that there was zero awareness on the part of the sinner. Because if you read them, that just doesn't make any sense. But these sins actually stand in contrast to what we're going to find in Numbers 15, which talks about sins of defiance. And these sins mentioned in Numbers 15 don't have a provision because the person who committed those was to be cut off. They're to be killed. All right, so that's what we're kind of dealing with here is um, unintentional sins are, there's a provision for those, and sins of defiance, there is no provision. Next, we get to the guilt offering. And this is from Leviticus 5.14 through 6.7. And it's similar and connected with the sin offering, The only difference is that in these types, there was some kind of restitution that needed to be made. And you see that as you go through five and six, what was required of the person who committed these offenses. What do these various offerings accomplish? Well, I think if we look at them and kind of summarize the types of things that they accomplish, we see that they do accomplish atonement for sin. They're a means by which Israel could offer thanksgiving to God. They're expressions of devotion and worship to him and praise to God. So that's kind of in in whole what we see from the five different types of sacrifices. And they were effective, but they weren't perfective to the one offering them. How do we know this? Well, for one thing, though we are told that forgiveness is given, they keep having to be offered, right? Sin keeps occurring because man is sinful, so the sacrifices are still necessary. If by any of these sacrifices the offerer were made perfect and the root of the issue of their sinfulness was dealt with, there wouldn't need to be another sacrifice. But that's not the case. These sacrifices evidence the sinfulness of man. Blood has to be spilt because man is sinful and can't approach a holy God. The sacrifices which we read um, atone for sin provided a substitute for the sinner. Instead of man's blood being spilt rightfully for his sin, an animal or many animals have to die. So once again, we see that man is dependent on God's provision to deal with sin. What are the practical implications of this? It seems so different. It is so different than how we worship today, but I think there are actually quite a few practical implications that we shouldn't overlook for our worship. One that I saw, our worship has to be done in the way that God deems fitting. God instructed the Israelites that with every animal sacrifice, the animal for the offering was to be unblemished or spotless. Because what they presented to the Lord was a reflection of the value that they assigned to the Lord himself. So the practical implication for us is, do we value the Lord so much that we are willing to make sacrifices in order to have better and purer and less distracted worship to him? Do we earnestly desire to give God our very best, or are we just content with what comes easy to us and requires little effort on our part? I think we always, and this has made me, strive to worship the Lord with the very best that I can give him. And the second implication that we see is that corporate worship of the Lord in the way that he instructs, is to be treasured by his people and not neglected. This system, besides providing that covering for sin, was the public and the corporate 
form that the Israelites had to worship the Lord. They actually, the Israelites desired the tabernacle system because it was the form that God had given them to express praise to him. So I think for church age believers like us, it's unthinkable that we would be a Christian and not be part of regular corporate worship in our church. Just as an Israelite could be saved if they had faith in God, but they would be seriously deficient in their experience if they were not participating in the tabernacle system, tabernacle ministry. So to a Christian today could have faith in God, but they're going to have a seriously deficient faith if they're not part of the corporate assembly of God's people on Sundays. So I hope that as you study this and see that, that it's corporate, it's their public means of worship, you just get a sense of the rightness and the goodness and how special it is when we, God's people, come together on a Sunday to publicly worship him and give him praise and the honor that's due his name. It's certainly made an impression on me and just reminded me of the beauty and the importance of worship with God's people. So we've looked at how Leviticus displays the holiness and the love of God, and we've seen the sinfulness and the dependence of man. Now we go into our third section, and that's that Leviticus magnifies the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it does this in two ways. First, through the lens of Leviticus, we see the uniqueness and the greatness of Jesus. And I think one of my hopes for all of us is that now, when we go to the Gospels and we read the stories of Jesus, we'll marvel at his greatness and his holiness and his victory over sin and its effects. So let's look at just one example. Turn to Luke 5. Luke 5. And I will read verses 12 through 14. And this is speaking of Jesus. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We've all read the instructions for lepers given in Leviticus 13, whether you wanted to read that or not. In verses 45 and 46 of that chapter, we read, as for the leper, who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days with which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Does that sound like what this man did in Luke 5? No. (laughs) Instead of crying out that he was unclean, He, out of, I believe, desperation and faith, comes and falls before Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus, doing what's unthinkable, stretches out his hand and touches the man, providing instant and complete cleansing. What should have happened in this type of situation was that the unclean would pollute the clean. 
However, that's not what happened. Why? It's because Jesus is the perfect, holy son of God. He's not simply clean, but he's holy. Um, Only the holy one, God, can bring purification to someone. So this little story evidences the holiness of God. I love it because I think we often read these stories and we see the compassion and the power of Jesus. But now with Leviticus in our minds, we also see the holiness of Jesus and his victory over sin. Which leads us to our second thing that we notice about how Leviticus magnifies the person and work of Christ. And that's that Christ is the superior sacrifice. I don't think you can read Leviticus and especially Leviticus 16 and the events of the Day of Atonement without thinking about the sacrifice of Christ and his once-for-all atonement made by his blood. In the next couple of minutes, we're going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to look at how Hebrews uh, builds off the imagery and the pattern of the sacrificial system to show that Jesus is the perfect, sufficient, and supreme sacrifice to actually remove sin and make the sinner perfect before God. But first, let's look at Leviticus 16. If you turn there, try to picture what's taking place as I read. I'm going to start in verse 11 and read all the way to verse 22. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself, for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." 
there are a lot of animals mentioned in this section. So I just want to clarify kind of what's taking place. So we have two sin offerings. There's the bull for the sins of Aaron because he can't atone for the sins of the people until his own sin is dwelt with, dealt with. And then the second sin offering is one of two goats, and it's a sin offering for the people. And then we have two rams, which are burnt offerings for Aaron and for the people. And then lastly, we have that second goat, this unique animal, the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was the visual representation for the people that their sins were being atoned for and removed from them as Aaron confessed the sins of the people on this animal and it was led outside the camp and released. Only Aaron could enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. However, in this ceremony with the scapegoat, all the people could witness the confession of sin on the scapegoat and it's being led away from them into the wilderness. As we've already seen, the sacrificial system was a blessing to the people, but it was never intended to actually remove their sin. The people had faith that God would do that through someone, through a descendant of Eve who had not yet come. So with Leviticus 16 in mind, let's look at Hebrews 9. It'll be on the screen. Verses 7 through 12, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And the author of Hebrews here is amplifying truths that we see in Leviticus. The tabernacle system was not meant to remove sin or perfect the sinner. What does verse 9 say about the tabernacle? It was a symbol for the present time. Through the constant shedding of blood and atoning of sin through the sacrifices, Israel was given this hands-on symbolism that showed their sinfulness and their need for a perfect and for an eternal sacrifice. Keep reading down through verse 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And that's so important for us to understand. The Old Testament saints couldn't have and couldn't experience the cleansed conscience that believers have after Christ 
because Christ hadn't actually died yet and paid for their transgressions. They looked forward in hope and in faith for what was to come, but as verse 15 told us, Christ hadn't yet paid for their transgressions through his perfect blood. And this is why when we get to Luke 2 uh, and we see Simeon, it says that he was looking for the consolation of Israel and that when he holds the baby Jesus in his arms, Luke 2.29 tells us, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. But Hebrews has more for us. We're going to read 24 through 26 of chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Unlike the old covenant mediator, mediators, the new covenant mediator, Jesus, enters into heaven itself with his own blood to pay for sins once and for all. No longer is any sacrifice needed because the one sufficient, perfect sacrifice has been provided by the death of Christ on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. I love how 2 Corinthians 5.21 states this truth. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 says that. Uh, But what happens after the sacrifice of Jesus? Hebrews 10.11-14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The sacrifices have or this sacrifice, has been made for our sins so that our sins are removed. They are atoned for and nothing else is needed. God's justice has been satisfied in the death of Christ. And we now approach God through a perfect mediator, Jesus, who Hebrews 7 says always lives to make intercession for us. Christians live with a cleansed conscience because Jesus paid in full the penalty for all of our sins. And so though, even though we are in this time of waiting for all the enemies of Christ to be made a footstool for his feet, as it said, uh, we do so in hope because we know that we will dwell with him in the fullest and the perfect way in eternity because of his sacrifice. And this is a truth that's confirmed, of course, in his resurrection from the dead. But how do we take hold of this sacrifice? How is the death of Jesus and his righteousness accredited to us? Well, Romans 10 tells us how in verses 9 through 13. 
says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you've listened to this and you haven't yet called on the name of Jesus in genuine repentance, turning from your sin and believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior who paid for your sins in his body on the cross, I would urge you not to leave before you have taken hold of the forgiveness that is offered only through him. Talk to me or talk to someone in your group about how you can be reconciled to our holy God. As I was studying Leviticus, I was also going through the Valley of Vision, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. It's a book of Puritan prayers, beautifully written. And I found one that I think kind of encapsulates what is our desire for those of us who love Christ. And so I would love to just read a portion of this. It'll be up on the screen to kind of focus our thoughts, and then I'll close us in prayer. This prayer reads, Help me to be resolute and Christ-contained. Never let me wander from the path of obedience to thy will. Strengthen me for the battles ahead. Give me courage for all the trials and grace for all the joys. Help me to be a holy, happy person, free from every wrong desire, from everything contrary to thy mind. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me. May I walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this book of Leviticus because of what it shows us about your character and that you are holy. We thank you that you have provided the way for sinners like us to be reconciled to you through the precious blood of Christ. We ask that we would rest in the completed work of Christ and find our security in him and rejoice in what you've done. Help us to be faithful in all things, to represent you and to be holy because you are holy. It's in the name of Jesus, our great Savior, that we ask this. Amen.